So my question for you this morning is, do you ever think about what your citizenship says about you? When people hear where you're from or you hear where someone else is from, whether a country or a state or a city, what does that say about you? And do we have any assumptions? You know, I think about living in Sanford. What it meant to live in Sanford 10 years ago is very different than what it means to live in Sanford today. We live in a shifting world. You know, one day people look at you kind of funny because you live in Sanford and now people are wanting to move to Sanford. Our, our, our world changes, but we assume so much about someone. If you're from Geneva, you've probably got a tractor. Or if you're from Lake Mary, you probably drive a Mercedes. It's just, it's, it's, it's what we assume. It's usually true. But, um, but that should get us thinking about what assumptions that we, we make about others, but really thinking about ourselves. Because where we invest our time, our energy, and our money says a lot about us. And does it determine who we are, who we surround ourselves with, who we associate with, where we live, and where we find our identity? Does that drive what we think about ourselves? And so I want us to kind of shift from where we were last week. So last week we were looking at family. And how what family you were in determined your identity in the ancient world. If you were adopted into a rich family, you would take on all the the, the privileges and inheritances that came along with that family. But your citizenship was also a very big deal. And so when Paul uses the word citizenship or citizen, it means a lot more than it does to us. Because we have debates over citizenship and we throw these, these words around, but they meant so much more back then. Think about Paul as a Roman citizen would appeal his Roman citizenship, and when they, they, they beat him without cause, the soldiers were afraid. A Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar, but a regular Jew could not. And so there's a, there's a saying in the ancient world that a man carries his citizenship like a snail carries his shell. That who you are and what nation you belong to, you carry with everywhere. And it was, it was a matter of pride what city or country or kingdom that you belong to. And so when Paul introduces this idea of being citizens, it's drawing to mind something very powerful in the minds of the reader that may not resonate as as much with us. Um, But it is important for us because Christians live as dual citizens. I mean, we have dual citizenship. The Bible tells us that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of the new Jerusalem. Yet, our IDs, and the IRS says differently. We are citizens of this nation in this temporal country at the same time. And so how do we live within the tension of this dual citizenship? How do we live in, in light of eternity and knowing that forever, if you are in Christ, you are members of His household. And you will dwell with Him forever, but for a time you dwell physically apart from Him. You dwell in a land that is perishing away. And so what we know about the kingdom of God, as Jesus told us, it is not of this world. It is not made of the same stuff that this planet is. But yet because of Christ, it is in our midst. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. And this, this tension that we find, and C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Amen? That is the tension that the believer should find. There is a longing inside me. I live here, but I don't belong here. 
There's something about this place that is not fitting for me. There must be something else. But we have this great tension to live as fully citizens of this world, but also fully alien. And I don't mean men in black, but I mean alien as, as in strangers, and you don't belong here. As in, this, you are not a resident of this, this place in, in the truest sense. And so what, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, you know that you have to go to work, and you have to pay taxes, and you have to abide by laws. But inside your heart, you want more. And there is a desire for things that matter for eternity. And you get caught in the daily rhythms and, and the, the monotony of, of, of life here. Or you look at the sins of the world. You look at all of the things that fall short of God's perfect plan for His creation. It makes you long for the restoration of it. Or you see sin going on unpunished. Or you see injustice happening. No, this can't be all there is. Our God is too good to allow this to continue. And so we deal with the tension of living here but being in a strange place and living among strange people. So that is a power and a confidence in the Christian that no one else can have. This is why dictators always fear Christians. Because you can't control someone who doesn't fear you. You can't control someone who is not looking to you for their authority and their comfort and their security. That is a terrifying thing to someone who wants absolute power. And that is a freeing thing to our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted. Because they know this is not their home. And they know that even if their life was taken from me, I'll go to be before my Lord. I want us to think of a couple examples of this dual citizenship lived out brilliantly. Joseph. We know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And if you don't, Joseph is the youngest son of one of the patriarchs. His father, Jacob, Israel, has a lot of sons. He's the young one. He's the favorite son. His brothers hate him. His brothers sell him into slavery. He gets brought into Pharaoh's house, the king of Egypt. The most powerful man in the world. Yet he's this outcast shepherd Hebrew boy. But because of his conduct, he's brought up in Joseph's house. He abides by all the rules of Egypt. Lives in the house of Pharaoh. Yet, still is faithful to his God and his people. And God uses his faithfulness. Becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt. Abiding by all their laws. But saving his people, his father and his brothers and their herds from starvation. Daniel. Another one, Daniel, who gets taken into exile, the king of Babylon, brought into his house, but because of his conduct and because of his character, he is one of his most trusted advisors. And while he abides by all the laws of Babylon, only to the point that he can remain faithful to God, and when they are commanded to bow down to a statue, he continues to pray to God in the faithful way that he does. And his companions along with him are thrown into a fiery furnace. And again and again, Daniel and his, and his, and his friends are bought, brought before the vengeful hatred of people who hate them and their God. They are faithful to their God, yet they are faithful citizens. And God honors and blesses them in it. And we live in the same tension. We will probably never become second most powerful in Egypt. We will probably never be the advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar. But... We will have to live within that tension 
of people around us worshiping false gods and bowing down before things that cannot save them and putting pressure on us to do the same, yet we are called to remain faithful. This has happened in the church throughout all the ages. I want to bring to your attention a beautiful example. So we have a letter written early 2nd century from a man named Athetes, which is the, the Greek word for disciple. So we don't know if that's his real name or if he's just calling himself disciple. We think he was probably a disciple of the Apostle Paul. We could tell that by his, his language. If he wasn't, he was very familiar with Paul's writings. But there's a Gentile. His name is uh, Diognetus. And Diognetus asked, what's up with these, these Christians? Tell me about these Christians. I've heard of them. Describe them to me. So this is a disciple describing Christians. Listen to how he describes them. This is a, a beautiful picture. Uh, and there's a lot that we can learn from this. And a lot that applies to us directly in our day. So here's how he describes Christians. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. This is a common practice in the Greco-Roman world. We brought this up last week. Life had no value. If you were unwanted or if you were with any defect, you would be destroyed, thrown out uh, and left in the wilderness or just in a trash heap outside of town. Look at this. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Some things have not changed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. This is what it means to be good citizens, that we obey the laws and even more so that our obedience and our faithfulness, even to the laws of man, are witness. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. Amen. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. I hope and pray we can be described in this way. So tying last week into this week, as adopted sons, the body of Christ has an identity that is unique to us through the Spirit, that makes no sense to the world, but it also should affect how we live in the world and where we view our home and where we feel at home. And so we're going to, when we're going to get into Ephesians 2 here, Paul uses this picture of citizenship as an answer to ethnic division within the church. The letter to the Ephesians is about the tension between Jews and Gentiles and the mystery that God would graft in those outside of the nation of Israel. But this book also serves as an encouragement 
It's for hope and for confidence and for gratefulness that God, through His Son, by His grace, would save children of wrath and bring them into His family. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Ephesians chapter 2. So I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of verse 1 through 10 because you're in Ephesians, you're in chapter 2, you've got to address 1 through 10. I wish I could go through, but I can't. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, here's how Paul sets this up. It is by grace, God's grace, and through faith that you are saved from being children of wrath, spiritually dead, to being children of God, alive in Christ. This is 1 through 10. By God's grace, through faith, you are saved. You once were children of wrath, but God, rich in mercy, through His Son, has made you alive in Christ. So that's why when we pick up, and I want to start reading in verse 11. Uh, We're going to focus on 19 through 22, but I want you to get the the setup here and what Paul's doing. Because whenever you read, therefore, verse 11, you have to understand what it's there for, and it's addressing being saved by grace through faith, not a gift of your own so that you may not boast. This is addressing a church that is mostly Gentiles, meaning those who are not Jews. It's addressing the divide that still exists within the church. Gentiles feeling inferior and Jews feeling superior. Look what Paul says, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. O Lord our God, you are just and righteous and true, and yet rich in mercy abounding in steadfast love, patient in long-suffering, forgiving, full of grace and love for wretched sinners. That you would take us, strangers and aliens, with no land to call our own, no identity to call our own, redeem us, Reconcile us. Adopt us. 
give us a citizenship and a kingdom that is imperishable. So Lord, I pray for your church this morning. Pray that you would comfort your people. That you would embolden us. That as the world crashes around around us, that as our culture and politics and nations and cities and people shake and crumble and fall, we know that we are standing on the unshakable rock of our salvation. We are citizens of a city on a hill, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A building city whose maker is God. And you made it so that we would dwell with you forever and that we would see our citizenship with you in heaven and looking forward to the new earth where we will walk in full restoration and rejuvenation and life and peace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that you encourage your church this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So quickly, I want to get some context before we get into our passage, and I'm going to move through these first few verses. And so, again, Paul's dealing with this tension between Jews and, and Gentiles, and we don't really understand this. I mean, we've had racial and ethnic text tensions in our day, but this is very different. The two did not even associate with each other. There's extremely different customs. They spoke different languages. They, they, they dressed differently. They ate differently. Everything was different. And now, these two types of people in Christ are coming together and sitting across from each other and eating meals together and no one knows what to do because this has never happened before and so Paul is giving them the foundation to come together in unity as the church but they have no hope of this ever happening without Christ I want to pick up in verse 14 for he speaking of Christ he himself is our peace who has made us both one, the Jew and the Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is unity and union within the church because of the blood of Christ. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, one new people, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Why is the cross important? It means peace. It means union with Christ. It means union with one another in Christ. It means what the world cannot do. Cultural reconciliation, racial reconciliation, everything else is only possible in a true sense through the cross. And it is by the blood of Jesus that we are at peace. This is what Paul is trying to get them to see in the church. And then in verse 18, this beautiful Trinitarian connection. For through him, Christ... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access through Christ, by His Spirit, to the Father. Our triune God worked perfectly in redemption and reconciliation. This is what it means to be the church. To the glory of God, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. So when we pick up in verse 19, So then, we have to remember everything that came before. So then, now that we've got that settled, now that we know the two are one, now that we know what the work of Christ has accomplished, now that we know what peace means, now we know what it means to have access to the Father, so then, you, who's the you he's referring to? You, you Gentiles in the flesh, you who are far off, you who had no hope in and of yourselves, you 
You are strangers and aliens. But there's a spiritual sense here too. The you is referring to Jews and Gentiles. Because you both were strangers and aliens apart from the grace of God. You both had no belonging among God's people unless a God of mercy would send his son to redeem you. God takes strangers, aliens, sojourners, those who have no identity and belonging of their own and gives them belonging and gives them a home. No rights, no land, no protection. You clearly do not belong here. And you were once that. But you now are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. They didn't belong with Israel. We didn't belong because of our sin. This is not just an ethnic thing that, yeah, because you were born in a particular country that you didn't belong. You're outside of the promises of God. You're outside of the grace of God, apart from God's mercy through Christ. But in Christ, your sin, your rebellion, your, your rejection that left you as strangers and aliens has now been reconciled and there is peace. This means everything changes. Paul held on tightly to his Roman citizenship so that he could go before Caesar and he could be protected against the guards. But he did not hold on to it nearly as tightly as his citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Because no matter what those could do, do not fear those who can kill the body. But fear him who can kill the body and soul and death. This citizenship means so much more. It is such a great identity in an area of peace because of what Christ has done. But you now, there's a present identity that is in the believers. You are. This is who you are today. This is where you stand. This is who you are. Through him, you are fellow citizens. And the picture that Paul gives us in Romans is that a tree has had bad branches that need to be cut off. There are branches that did not belong that are grafted in. It means a fully grafted in. You are fellow citizenships. You b- citizens, you belong to the same vine. You are fellow citizens of where? Citizens of a kingdom that is different than the one he's speaking about. Citizens of a new Jerusalem, city on a hill. Why is this important? Because as a Roman citizen, Paul could approach Caesar the most powerful man in the world at that time. But as a citizen, the kingdom of God, you can approach the king of kings and lord of lords. Don't believe me. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is a great passage about encouraging the saints. We're going to look at more of it later. But I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews speaks about the present identity of the church right now. Verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come. This is something that is already accomplished. If you are in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion. If you read the Old Testament, Mount Zion is the, 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 the temple mount, the, the, the place of God's worship, where God's people are to dwell forever. If you're in Christ, you have come. You are already there. You are already His. And to the city of the living God, what does it mean to be a citizen? Come to Mount Zion, the city of the living, the, the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We'll get to that more later on, but there is a city in heaven. There is Jerusalem on earth and Jerusalem in heaven. 
What do we understand about the heavenly Jerusalem? And to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, what does that mean? So many angels you can't count, dressed for the greatest worship ceremony ever. They are dressed immaculately. They are, they are surrounding the temple, uh, or excuse me, the throne, crying, holy, holy, holy. Every beautiful being that God has ever made, surrounding him. Praising Him day in and day out, the creator of all things, the living God. And who are there with those angels praising? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, those who have gone before us, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, God, His angels, His perfected saints, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is mediation through propitiation. Christ intercedes for us. He is our our entrance ticket into this new Jerusalem because of his blood shed for us, the perfect price for sins. So when Paul speaks about citizenship, this is the citizenship he is getting them to look at. And the point of the book of Hebrews is to say, don't keep looking back at the Old Testament. Don't keep looking back in these sacrifices that that cannot save you. The blood of bulls and goats that must keep being shed over and over again. But look to the once for all shedding of blood from Jesus Christ. It is by him and his mediation that you are brought to the kingdom of the living God. You are fellow citizens. Meaning you have as much right to be there. Someone born as, as Abraham Isaac and Jacob. You are brought in to God's holy nation. And so what does our nation mean? And you're going to see these, or excuse me, our, our citizenship. You're going to see this unfold and it becomes more and more personal. You are first citizens and then saints and then members of God's household. So if you become a citizen, you take on the nature of that land, like I said in the introduction that you begin to take on the characteristics, you are where you live in a sense. You are citizens of this kingdom. You are saints. He has made you citizens of his kingdom and he has set you apart to be unlike anyone else. You are set apart to God, but even more personally, you live in his kingdom. He has set you apart for a purpose, but he has also brought you into his house. He has made you members of his household. You get to eat his food. You get to sit at the table as a son. This is not purely some political, civil citizenship. This is intimate. This is personal. And this is an amazing privilege. This is why we, that's why I spent an hour on adoption last week and didn't scratch the surface. Because to think about God would make me a citizen of, of his city and just let me eat off the street would be one thing. If I get to eat off streets of gold, I'm good. Then he's going to set me apart to serve him and be used for something that matters for eternity. That's amazing. But to take it one step further and say, come into my house, sit at my table, eat, feast, rejoice, you are mine. That is incredible. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, verse 20. What we don't get in the English here, both household and built come from the same root. Oikos, it has a wide meaning in Greek. 
It means house or, or home or building or structure. And so Paul is intentionally playing on words here. The same household that eats at the Father's table is also a building. It is a structure. And it is built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets. So it brings this additional analogy. We go from civil to personal to familial um, to now into structural, into home and building. And it's, and it's foundation is the apostles and the prophets. We know who the apostles are. Those are the ones who are sent by Jesus, called by Jesus, the sent ones who went out to proclaim the gospel and plant churches of whom we are the fruit. Hundreds of generations later. And the prophets. Now, you need some clarification here. The prophets in the early church are, are similar to the prophets in the Old Testament. We, we know kind of how they look. Agabus is one of them in Acts. Agabus told about the famine that was going to happen, and they, they raised money for the saints, and he told uh, Paul about his Im- imprisonment. This is a, these are roles and offices for a time. The, the apostles and the prophets, those declaring the will of God, built the foundation. And this house is built on that foundation and is built up. So if you know anything about building, your foundation is important. Because if you don't build your foundation, well, everything on top of it will crumble. And what is most important in that foundation is where you start. You must start from a place of strength. You must build off the most sure spot in that foundation. And that was typically called the cornerstone or the capstone. They would start in one stone that set the tone for every other stone to be put on top of it. And that stone is Christ himself. The apostles and prophets are important. And they're nothing without the capstone, the cornerstone that builds everything on top of it. Christ himself being the cornerstone. So that means that whatever is built must be built on Christ. Whatever is built needs him or it will all crumble. So this was important for the church then. But as I was thinking about this this morning, I wanted to ask, is Christ the cornerstone of what you are trying to build? Do you look to his wisdom and his word first? Do you look and see, Christ, I'm going to place you exactly where you need to be. I'm going to found everything on you. I'm going to start with you and build from there. Or do you begin to build in your own might and your own strength? And maybe I'll consult God's word later. Maybe I'll pray after my way falls apart. Anybody besides me ever been there? How often do we do that? How often do we build things in our own strength? We've, we've got in our mind, this is what I'm going to create for myself. This will be perfect because I'm putting my all into it. Forgetting who the chief cornerstone is and nothing will ever stand if it is not built on him. And how important that is that we begin there. And I love you guys, but I've talked to so many of you who, and so many people who I've got all these plans and I've got all these great things that I'm putting together. And I ask, well, have you consulted Scripture? Have you sought godly counsel? Well, I, well, I prayed about it, and because I still really want to do it, that means I'm going to do it. It's not how prayer works. But so often people end up falling on their faces because Christ is an afterthought in what they plan and what they do instead of going to him first. And if that's how he builds his church, this is how we should build within our lives as well. So this structure, apostles, prophets, Christ, verse 21, 
in whom Christ, the whole structure being joined together. This word structure, it means something larger that is made out of a lot of pieces that is greater than the pieces themselves. No one ever looks at a beautiful building and says, man, that is an amazing brick right there, number 37 from the left. The structure is what we awe at. In the the church, the structure is what is amazing. But how often do we want to be that one brick that stands out? We want to be number 37 from the left, everyone thinking how great we are. How often we individualize the church. We make it all about what we want. Everyone else should shift because I need a little bit more shine. Or I need a little bit more catered to me. There's a structure that Christ is building that is bigger than us, and we get to be a part of it. And we rejoice that when we are built into this building, and and Peter, we don't have time to go there, but Peter in in chapter 2 of 1 Peter gives us this beautiful picture of us being living stones. And the church being this beautiful picture of a saint sat next to a saint, sat next to a saint, stacked on top of a saint, stacked on top of a saint, and this beautiful building is being built up. He has redeemed me to stand next to you, and he's building a building, a structure founded on Christ. And what is this structure? It is joined together, and it grows into a holy temple of the Lord. The church is not this building or any other building. The building, the structure that matters, is a temple of the living God. But this language here of being joined together and built together, it's it's continual language. It's intimate language. What he's doing is he is redeeming his people and he is building little by little and it is going and going until the last saint, the last coin is found, the last sheep is brought home and it will be this beautiful temple of the living God and we will see it all consumed. But during this time, we wait because he's still building. He's still working. He hasn't stopped. When the world around us is shaken, and you worry, is God still working in this? Absolutely. Do we look for God's work in governors and presidents and police force and all that? We could try, but it's always going to disappoint us. He works in hearts and minds and souls, and he is building up his saints into a place that is worthy of his worship. This is not an ordinary structure. This is a temple. A temple is where man meets God, where God is worshipped. Where man falls on their face and says, I am not worthy to be in your presence. But yet, he is making his presence among us. Even more so. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As if the benefits of the union with Christ are not enough. We could rest on everything before this. We are citizens, saints, members of the household of God, part of God's building, great, but even further, a dwelling place for God. This oikos word comes up again. In him you are also being built together. This building, this home, is being made into a dwelling place of God. And there's an emphasis on unity here. You are joined together. You are built together. You are citizens together. This is the one people. This is the one new man. doesn't matter Jew, Gentile, old, young, black, white, whatever. It means you are joined together into one house, one temple, one God, because our God is one and he desires that we be one. This language is pushed through here so that 
the church may not be divided, that they may be united on the blood of Christ. But I want to stop here for a moment. I want you to think about a dwelling place for God. It's so easy because Paul uses such big flowery language to move through this and miss how amazing this is. A dwelling place for God. I want you to think for a moment. If any of you know your Old Testament, what was the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament? The tabernacle, then the temple, but most specifically the Holy of Holies. This is where God's very presence dwelt. And what do we know about that? God himself dwelling, resting on these golden cherubim. And only one man, one time a year, could step in there. And anyone who was unclean or unworthy would die on the spot. One man all year could approach the presence of God. And if he did not clean from head to toe, and even in between his teeth, if there was any spot on his body that was unclean, he would die. So much so they would wrap a rope around his, his waist. That if he died, that someone else wouldn't have to die going in there to get him, that they would drag him out. The same God who requires that level of holiness sent his spirit to dwell within us that we might be a dwelling place for God. Wrap your brain around that. That God would call his saints, his people, to be a dwelling place for his spirit. To consider us worthy for Almighty God to make His home with us. That is why Jesus said, it is better that I leave than send my Spirit. Because when the Spirit comes, we become a dwelling place for God. That's why Jesus can tell the, the Samaritan woman, it doesn't matter where you worship. You can worship in spirit and truth because my Spirit is in you. I will teach you how to worship. I will make my home with you. And again, this is beautifully Trinitarian. Look at verse 22. In him, speaking of Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Whenever you see God spoken of like that, it's typically referring to the Father by the Spirit. In Christ, where God dwells by his Spirit. I want that to sink in. I want you to meditate on that for a moment. This is what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be the church. We are so preoccupied with buildings and pews and music styles that we miss this. That's why we're in this series and want to encourage the church in this. And as we go forward, this is what I want us to stand on as our identity. So what do we learn about the church in Ephesians 2 and how it relates to our God? Look at this. One body at peace, through the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Citizens, saints, and members of the household of God the Father, a temple of the Lord and a dwelling place of God the Spirit. We see perfectly in this the work of Christ through the plan of the Father, through the power of the Spirit. What a beautiful, complete passage on what it means to be the church. Before we close, I want to ask you a few questions as, you bring it, as we bring it back to the introduction. How do you handle this dual citizenship? How do you handle knowing that you are a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth? Or do you notice it? 
Because if you don't feel this, this tension, you may want to check your citizenship card. If you don't feel this tension, you should ask, am I a stranger or am I just living like one? Am I living a lie? Because if you are a believer, you should feel this tension every day. I want to please the Lord. I want to grow, but my flesh wants everything that this world has to offer. What does this tension mean? Are you so broken over your own sin because the Holy Spirit has has convicted you? And you are so aware of the evils of the world that you long for God to restore all things because this is not my home. Or are you okay with it? Uh, David sent out this great quote from John Owen to our men's group yesterday, so I had to share it to be an encouragement. John Owen, great Puritan pastor, says, If you are fighting sin, you are alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway unopposed, you are dead, no matter how lively this sin makes you feel. Take heart, embattled saint. There is going to be a tension with our own sin, unless you are giving into it and living in it. And so what citizenship do you most associate with? As your emotions go up and down with what happens in the news, are you defined by your political party or anything else in yourself? Do you find your citizenship in what your driver's license says or what the book of life says? And this idea of citizenship, it means so many things, and it's polarizing in our culture, but it's such a smokescreen. Because how should the church view our citizenship? I feel that many are guilty of the earth, of focusing on the earthly and missing the eternal. So whether people make divisions in the church based on ethnic or cultural or racial divisions and citizenships, that is sinful. Or if you make earthly citizenship or, or, or union um, in, in a nationalistic sense, if you make that your greatest concern, that is also sinful. We must know that we are, we are, we are dual, dual citizens. John Stott calls it being between two worlds. But there is one that is far greater than the other. And it saddens me how often I speak to Christians who most of their life is consumed with their citizenship here and a kingdom that is shaken, that, that, that will shake and will fall apart. So I want to leave you with a couple passages that talk to us about what we do in the meantime. Hebrews chapter 12. I told you we'd go back to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, picking up in verse 28. Same, same chapter where he says that you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and he gives some encouragement. This is how he closes the chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You read Ephesians 2 as a believer. Be grateful. Be grateful for your citizenship. Be grateful for a kingdom that is unshakable, because our God is a consuming fire. Either you are in His city, or you will be consumed by his fire. Also our hope, Hebrews 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, 
but we seek the city that is to come. What city is that? Revelation 3 in one of Jesus' letters to the churches. He speaks about those who, those who conquer, meaning those who, who persevere in the faith. Revelation 3, pick up in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth and those who find their citizenship on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears to hear, listen to those words. You want to be found as a conqueror. You want to be found persevering in Christ. You want to be named among those who are in his city. Because outside of it there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And hell and misery and torture forever. One more encouragement in Philippians chapter 3. Speaking of citizenship and how we know this is certain. Ephesians 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The same God who sustains all things and will put all things under His foot has made us citizens. And we await Him. And He will transform our lowly, stinking, wretched, dying bodies into a glorious body like His. Our hope during this time is that we have a city because God has declared it. We have a new body and identity because Jesus has accomplished it. And we have peace because the Spirit seals it. So I just want to challenge you this morning. You will go the way of your nation. If this is your home, this dirt that we step on every day, it will pass away. It is shakable and you will die with it. And it can be taken from you at any moment. But if this is not your home, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if your blood has made you you at peace with God and at peace with His saints, then rejoice and rest. He is preparing a place for you. In the beautiful picture at the end of our Bible we see in Revelation 21 and 22, we get a picture of this city which we will be citizens of. The heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth. No more tears, no more death. No need for sun because God's glory is so bright that it shines forever and ever. No need for a temple because Jesus Christ the Lord is the temple. His saints built up around Him to drink of the river of life and eat of the trees of life and the fruits that will feed us forever. And we will feast and dwell in a beautiful home that He has prepared for His people, His saints. This is what it means to be the church. Let's pray.
Lord, we praise you. We praise you for being rich in mercy. We praise you for your righteousness, your holiness, your goodness, your justice, your faithfulness, and your forgiveness. You have blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. You've called us body, you've called us bride, you've called us citizens, you've called us temple, you've called us saints, you've called us beloved, you've called us sons. What other God could do that? Lord, forgive us when we are ever not in awe of you. Forgive us when we make you so small in our minds. Forgive us when we fear this world and we find our identity in it. Forgive us when we, find, when we look for hope in a city here that cannot last, but we don't look to the city that you are building for us that will last forever. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his blood that has reconciled us. Thank you for those who you are calling home, for those who you are redeeming, Lord. I pray you continue to work in your people. You continue to draw the lost home. You continue to bring strangers and aliens into citizenship that we might rejoice and be united together, standing firmly on our chief cornerstone. It is to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus, the spotless lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. As in his name we pray, amen.